Good morning. My name is Randy. I serve you from the Elder Board. And uh, if you're a uh, newcomer here, your visitor, I am not the pastor. Amen and amen. Um, we're looking forward to Marcus's first Sunday here, which will be next week. Uh, November 3rd will be an auspicious date because not only will it be the first time that Marcus will be preaching to us as a senior pastor, but it's the beginning, it's the anniversary date of a 33 and a third year honeymoon between Marcus and Trinity Church. So be here for that. Um, I, I need to start off with a couple of apologies. Um, first one is this, uh, you know, with the power outage and everything else, uh, I haven't slept well in the last couple of nights. I want to thank uh, Steve and Julie Miller for letting us sleep at their house last night because at least we weren't surrounded by well-to-do neighbors with diesel generators. Um, so I'm a little foggy, so at some point I'm going to just start reading because I can't remember much of anything. Um, the second apology is that I thought the Saints bye week was today, so I prepared accordingly. I have a lot of confidence. I have a great deal of confidence that we'll be able to catch most of the first half. Um, so just bear with me. Uh, this has been uh, an unusual October at Trinity uh, as far as messages go. You know, we started off with Miguel doing a great job with Ecclesiastes. Uh, and then Jeff brought us into Psalm. Last week, uh, Bill dug deep on the Trinity. And we're going to do something today. But uh, today we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 10. So if you don't have a Bible and you want one, please go back to the back and pick one out of that carousel. Uh, if you're, you want to go ahead and get to 1 Corinthians now, if you need to look in the index for it, feel free. It's in the New Testament, about seven books in. Um, I just want to emphasize that uh, next week is the start of a new season here at Trinity, and we're very excited about it, uh, looking forward to it. So, um, oh, one other thing. Mark is going to start a series on Colossians. So if you haven't read the book yet, start reading it. Read it and reread it. It'll be a great blessing to you. So uh, let's pray again if you don't mind. Father God, thank you so much for giving us this day. Thank you for uh, being able to just fellowship with you to be in your presence, to know your love, uh, to know you personally. Father, we are grateful for so many of these things, and we just uh, pray that today you would you'd speak to us and uh, take away any uh, blocks or inhibitions that uh, are, are between us and you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, <clears throat> so Boudreaux, he worked at the Geimar plant, not the big one up the river, but the little one up the bayou. Every day after work, Boudreaux would come home, he'd walk around the shoulder of LA-1, he'd skirt around the edge of the marsh, and he'd walk along the bayou in the tall grass in a little path he'd make until he'd get home to his lovely wife, Marie. One day, he'd find out there's another fellow on the other side of the bayou. He's walking in the tall grass, too. So they never see each other, but they start talking. Find out his name, Claros. Boudreaux, comment ça va? Très bien, Clarence, et vous? Comme ci, comme ça. It went on that way for a while, but then they got into a snit. Who know why? They start talking bad to one another. Boudreaux, you're monkey brain. Clarence, you're pooty head. Kept going like that until they got very violent, and they start talking bad to each other. Boudreaux saying, Clarence, if I ever get me across the bayou, I'm going to whoop you upside your head. Clarence goes, if you ever get across the bayou, I'm going to hit you in your monkey brain. Went like that for a while. Suddenly, a change come to the marsh. Somebody building a pipeline through there. 
If Boudreaux see it, come close to where he walked. He go talk to the worker mans. He goes, boys, where this thing going? So, oh, go down this way a little bit, zig there, zag there. Then we're going to cross the bayou. You're going to cross the bayou with that thing? The worker man said, don't worry. We're going to elevate it. So whether you're going up the bayou in your bateau or you're going down the bayou in the payroll, you've got plenty of room. You've got nothing to worry about. So Boudreaux think, this could be my chance. So we go home. Another couple of days pass. Suddenly, the worker man, they got that pipeline elevated going across the bayou. And Boudreaux think, this is my chance. You go home. See your sweet wife, Marie. She said, Boudreaux, dinner not ready for another 45 minutes, so make yourself useful. He said, Marie, I'd love to, but I got to be something I got to do. I got to go across the bayou, and I'm going to clunk old uh, Clarence in the head. She said, no, Boudreaux, why do you want to do that? said, because, well, I don't remember, but it got to be done, and I'm going to do it. So he marches out the door. He goes away. Man, four minutes later, Boudreau come running back. Boom, in the door, slam the door. His heart is beating. His chest is pumping. He's white as a ghost. Marie said, Boudreau, what's wrong with you? He said, Marie, I went down there to cross that pipe, and the worker man said, them put up a sign, Clarence, eight foot two. He said, Marie, if I'd known that boy was that big, I'd have never said boo to him. And, and so it is in life. More often than not, it's the big things in life that frighten us. It's the big things in life that cause us anxiety. It's the big things in life that get our attention. But when it comes to matters of the heart, big things matter, but little things matter too. So whether we're preparing our heart to worship, we're examining our hearts prior to communion, or we are in the process of becoming a wholehearted follower of Christ, we need to root out those little things as well as the big things because there's danger there. And I'm going to tell you that I think the small things are more dangerous than the big things. And this is why. Trip hazards. Trip hazards are a slight change in elevation along a path of travel. They could be a tree root along a mountain trail. They could be a bunched-up corner of a rug in your living room. Or they could be a sidewalk that's heaved just a little bit. But they'll trip you. They'll get you. And they are dangerous, not just because they're small. They're dangerous because they're almost invisible. Unless you're really looking for them, you may not notice them. And sometimes we consider them insignificant. Are there any men here who have a little work day around the house and your wife tells you, oh, be sure you look out for that hose or that extension cord, and you go, yeah, I got it. Next thing you know, you're on your face. Yeah, no, liars. It happens to all of us. The third reason that uh, a trip hazard is dangerous is because they are insidious. And I'm going to be throwing some uh, definitions up on the screen because I know not everyone had the opportunity to go to public school in Louisiana like I did, and I want this thing to roll. So insidious, I love this word, operating in an inconspicuous or seemingly harmless way, but actually with grave cause, grave effect, I'm sorry. So um, th these trip hazards are small. They are almost insignificant. They are insidious, but they will reach up and they will bring you down. So beware. Um, if you would... I'd like all of us to turn to 1 Corinthians 10. And would you stand while we read scripture, please? We're going to read the first 11 verses. 
For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of days has come. Thank you. Be seated. So here's Paul writing to the church in Corinth. Uh, it was a church that uh, was in a wealthy town. They had um, Jewish believers and Gentile believers. Uh, let's, take, let's do this. Let's take a little look at the backstory of Corinth. You can see the uh, the Mediterranean. Left to right on the top, Spain is Europe and all the way over to Turkey. On the right-hand side, you've got the Middle East, Syria, Lebanon, Israel. Uh, on the bottom, from right to left, is Africa, Egypt, all the way over to Morocco. So um, Corinth is its in there somewhere. Can you see where the, the arrow is? Uh, that is where Corinth is. So it was really very close to the center of the Mediterranean. And it was strategic in this way. If I was a lemon farmer in Valencia and I wanted to buy cedar from Lebanon, instead of having to travel the entire distance of the Mediterranean and travel back, I could go to Corinth because that was a trading center. It was a mecca for traders. So I could cut my travel time in half, make more money. Um, so it was not only strategic... Uh, you can see here that Corinth is near Athens, uh, Philippi. You can see that Corinth is actually two ports. Lycaeum was on the west side, so it serviced the western part of the Mediterranean, and Syrium was on the east side, and it serviced the eastern side of the Mediterranean. And you can see that there are actually protected little gulfs in there. So not only were they strategically located in the Mediterranean, they were safe havens for ship. Um, uh, Corinth flourished as a trading port. Uh, they were established in the 10th century B.C. Um, they got to be very wealthy. At some point, they became part of the Roman Empire. And because of the wealth they had, I don't know if you've seen this before, sometimes arrogance follows wealth. And with arrogance comes presumptuousness. They become very presumptuous. They got in a snit with Rome. Who knows why? And Rome said, you need to do this or there's going to be trouble. They said, we are too important. We are indispensable. We're rich. Nothing can happen to us. So in 146 B.C., Roman consul Lucius Mummus uh, sacked Corinth. He took all the men, put them on one side. He put all the women and children on the other. All the men, he killed. All the women and children sold into slavery, gone to the four winds. Corinth became a ghost town. Were they arrogant? Yes. Were they indispensable? No. So... Fast forward about 100, degree, excuse me, 100 years, uh, Julius Caesar becomes emperor of Rome, and he decides that it's time to build Corinth back up again. 
So he decides to make Corinth great again. Stop me if you've heard this story. Um, so what he did was he took people from Italy, from Greece, from Syria, and from Egypt, and imported them to Corinth. Interesting the way he did that. They needed labor, so he went to Judea, and he got Judean slaves and introduced them into the mix. We have to assume that a lot of those were, were Jewish people. So um, Corinth became a success. It was revived. And fast forward another 100 years, and the uh, Apostle Paul came through in around 51 A.D. When he got to Corinth, Corinth was five times the size of Athens. It was immensely wealthy once again. They were flourishing. They were also steeped in idol worship and immorality. They were famous for the Temple of Aphrodite, which was uh, up on a hill, and the Temple of Aphrodite was famous for having uh, temple prostitutes. Now, if that didn't fit your bill, there were other things throughout the city, uh, depending upon your orientation. If you had the imagination and the money, your sin could run rampant uh, in Corinth. I've heard of places like that in the U.S. as well. So Paul established a church here. And he wrote this letter in 56 A.D. after he'd left Corinth and he started hearing about problems in the church. Some of the problems had to do with the church reflecting the culture that they were in. Uh, and chapter 10 addresses this. So if we look at our text, the first five verses talk about the privileges of God that the Israelites enjoyed. In, in sort of a way, this is similar to the problems that Corinth had and that they became arrogant. They had something that they just took for granted. God was with them, and he was with them in a mighty, miraculous, audible, visual, and dramatic way. And they just took that for granted. The next five verses reference specific warnings and examples that God gave to the Israelites during the exodus out of Egypt. Uh, The Jewish believers in the church would have recognized these specific uh, examples, and they would have been able to share that with the Gentiles. So let's take a look at some of these, excuse me, these examples. Here in 1 Corinthians 10, you see that uh, the first verse is, these things were done as an example for us. We might not desire evil as they did. So what evil did they do? Well, they were idolaters. Idolatry, that's big. I mean, that almost brought the nation of Israel down. Uh, sexual immorality, that's huge. I mean, that will knock you down in a minute. Uh, putting Christ to the test, that's big. Grumbling, really, is kind of small. And you got to look at it and go, what doesn't belong in this list? Uh, I'm going with grumbling. Uh, it's, a, it's small potatoes. It's a nothing burger. you got to say, Paul, what's this? Get a life. Move on. But he put it here. And why did he put it here? I think it's because uh, it's a trip hazard. So let's just take a look at all the things in idolatry. You go to Numbers 25.1. This is a story where Moses was on Mount Sinai. The people were down below. They were anxious. You know what? It's been a little over 12 minutes. I think he's dead. So Aaron, what do you want to do? Well, give me all your gold earrings. We'll put them in this fire. We'll, and Aaron actually molded a calf, a golden calf, uh, out of this. Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments. He asks what's going on. We don't know. We threw gold in this pit, and the calf jumped out. He was so angry that he threw down the, the scroll, the tablets that God had written with his own hand, uh, the Ten Commandments, and he broke them. That was idolatry. And what happened was, uh, I think about 3,000 were killed that day because of their idolatry. Immorality is big. 
This was talking about when the Israelites were uh, whoring with the Moab, Moabite women. And uh, God was very displeased. What happened was 23,000 people died in one day. Because of this, 24,000 died total. We go to testing God. Uh, this is again in Numbers when they uh, were... Um, they were unsatisfied with the things that God was giving them. It's almost like a little kid in the back of the car when you're on vacation. Tell Tommy to quit touching me. I'm not touching you. you. Turn around, stop it. Don't touch me. I'm not touching her. I'm going to you know, pull this car over right now if you don't do that. It's us. We're testing God. We're saying, how close can we get to sin without actually sinning? Because I'd like to do this. And I don't want to have any consequences for it. So grumbling comes in here, oops, sorry, and uh, this is where they uh, had come through the wilderness, God had taken them so far, they were going to the promised land, and uh, they thought that uh, all is lost, because God has given up on us, so they were grumbling, God was so mad at this, that he said, every one of you guys that grumbled, you're going to die in the wilderness, if you're 20 years or older, I'm going to let your children go see the promised land, you're not going to have it, Deek. so, what is grumbling? It's to murmur in discontent or dissatisfaction. It's always about circumstances or the people who got us into these circumstances. Um, grumbling has two aspects. I'm sorry. I, you have to forgive me. I'm lost. <laughs> Well, something I cut out, so God didn't want us to see it. The grumbling has two aspects. One is action. One is attitude. So under the action part, uh, there are two parts of the action part. One is vocalizing and one is gathering. Um, when you are vocalizing, you're verbalizing your discontent. You grumble to those who are around you so they'll see that you're having a bad day, a bad season, or a bad life. You feel compelled to tell people that things are bad and they could be different. No, they should be different because I'm involved. It's talking people over to your point of view. The second part, the gathering, refers to the fact that we want people in on our side. Grumbling was Facebook before there was Facebook. Grumbling is waking up in the morning going, Dear world, oh my gosh, I had to get out of bed. Well, I don't feel like it, but i got to go to work. Oh, my goodness, dear Facebook, uh, traffic was horrible. Who bought all these stupid red lights? And people who drive, they're all stupid. Then I get to work, and these people are stupid. Why don't they do what I think they ought to do? Oh, look, I have three likes. I must be on to something. The world is, uh, is on my side. Grumbling is a team sport. If we're miserable and we're in a pit... We want people to come to the pit when they hear us grumbling. Then we want to grab them in and pull them down. We want them to be in our pit with us and agree that this is a miserable pit. Um, the other aspect is attitude. If we uh, look at the definition of grumbling, uh, so I'm, I apologize. So grumbling is... Um, the definition we had was a secular definition of grumbling a believer's definition of grumbling is this i believe that god is sovereign and he's in charge of circumstances i believe that god is love 
but I'm not really happy about what's happening right now. Grumbling from a believer's point of view is saying, God, you're letting me down. Um, because God is sovereign, because he controls our circumstances, all of our circumstances flow from that, flow from that love. So when we as believers grumble, we're saying, I'm not completely happy with the way God is handling this. He's not really doing a very good job. And grumbling, my attitude is that I'm not looking for a solution to a problem other than my own. I'm not looking to learn how to be content. I'm not looking for contentment. I'm not looking for God's lesson in this. I'm not looking for spiritual growth. I'm not looking to bear fruit. I'm not looking to see God's hand or his face or his approval. What I'm looking for is people to see things my way because I value the world's opinion and I want the world's opinion on my side. And in grumbling, we have two audiences. One is God. And when we grumble, what we say to God is, I am so disappointed in you. I was thinking things would be a lot different than this and not just different, a lot better. I am so disappointed in you. The second audience we have is the world. What we're telling the world when we grumble is that there's not a dime's worth of difference between them and us. Oh, yeah, we have a Savior. We have an eternal hope. We have the opportunity to have a peace that defies all understanding. We have the Holy Spirit living within us. But you know what? We got a God who's really kind of picky unish. He's hard of hearing. He's uncaring. When we grumble, we impugn the sovereignty of God. We cheapen Jesus' sacrificial death. We demean the resurrection. And we become really sucky witnesses. Grumbling has a time aspect. If we look at uh, numbers... This is the uh, reference from the Old Testament that Paul cited. All the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? That got God's attention, and it got his anger and his justice. So in this one little part, we've got the past, Egypt. We've got the present. I'm unhappy right now. We've got the future. Oh, my goodness. Our wives and our kids, they're going to be toast. Sometimes we do the same thing. We think about the past in a nostalgic, idealistic way, which makes us unhappy with where we are now and kind of scared about what's going to happen in the future. After Katrina, uh, FEMA sent the largest number of urban planners to New Orleans that had been gathered on the planet since World War II. The city was, you remember what the city's like, it was horrible. Lots of destruction, devastation. So all these planners got together, and almost unanimously, their verdict was this. We need to make New Orleans a geographically smaller city. It's going to work out so well for everybody. If it's smaller, we have to have fewer police stations, fewer cop cars, fewer policemen. We have to have fewer firehouses, fewer fire engines. And nobody's going to have to go very far for a first responder. 
trash collection is much smaller. The contracts we write are lower. What they were going to, what they recommended for the perimeter of New Orleans that were, that had been shrunk in was to restore it to either wetlands or some greeneries and parks so that the next time a fierce storm or hurricane blew over, that would help abate the strength of the storm, which would help protect New Orleans. Great idea. It's good. A lot of challenges involved. But when they brought it to the politicians, they said, what do the people say? So they interviewed refugees in Atlanta, Houston, guys who are still staying around here. And almost to a man, what they said was, nah, I want New Orleans back the way it was. Because I remember after early mass at St. Cabrini or the Fellowshipper, we'd go by uh, McKenzie's and pick up a Dobage cake. Then we'd go by K&B and pick up some of that French vanilla ice cream. Then we'd go by my mama's. We'd have a great time. That's what I want. The problem with that is St. Cabrini, the fellowship, was boarded up in 1952. Mackenzie's hadn't sold a cake since the 60s. And K&B went out of business in 1980. New Orleans was also competing every year to be the murder capital of the world. City government was at best inefficient. But at worst, it was corrupt and inept. But that's what all these people wanted to go back to. Just like the Egyptians. Oh, let's go back. It was such a wonderful time. We do the same thing. We have this idealized nostalgia that uh, we throw up, which is not dangerous unless we start grumbling about today and we're afraid for tomorrow. We are scared of change. God's moving us from here to here. Uh -uh. I want to go back to something I have in my mind that never really existed in the first place. So we have to ask, what were the Israelites thinking? I'm just going to, if you guys bear with me, I'm going to run through this, see where it gets us. Yeah, there, here we go. So, look at this. In Exodus, um, this is the, the Egypt they wanted to go back to. They set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And the Israelites built cities for them. They ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service. Uh, Pharaoh commanded all his people, everyone is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, every son. So, I mean, this is what they want to go back to. Yeah, that looks pretty inviting. Um, yeah, so then the people cried out to God to rescue him from the slavery. I apologize for this. So here we go. Uh, Here's, this is what the Israelites saw. In Exodus, the, chapter 7 through 10, there were the nine plagues. Chapter 12, there was the Passover. And if you're not familiar with that, that's when the angel of the Lord came over. And if you hadn't put the blood of the sacrificial lamb around your, your lentil, then uh, the firstborn in your household would die. They saw this. Um, they, yeah, when they left Egypt, uh, the, Is the Egyptians gave them gold and silver. You're leaving? Oh, look. Here's uh, my American Express. Charge whatever you want. Just see you later. That's how they plundered Egypt. First time in history the city's been plundered by people just peaceably walking out. Uh, when they got out, God sent a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Tell me that's not dramatic. When they uh, got up to the Red Sea and they're back to the Red Sea, the cloud turned around, said one day it was guiding them. Now it was guarding them. They get to the Red Sea. Here's the greatest military force on the face of the earth that's chasing them. They watch as the Red Sea is parted. They walk across. 
the Egyptian army gets in there. They're swallowed up whole. They saw this. Then in chapter uh, 15, we have the songs of Moses and Miriam. They were singing songs of victory. The God has protected us. Look what he's done. Then we get to the 22nd verse in chapter 15. Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went to the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness, found no water. When they came to uh, Mar, they could not drink the water of Mar because it was bitter. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we going to drink? I, I don't know. But I know this. God sent those nine plagues over Israel, and you witnessed it, and you didn't suffer. God sent the angel to go kill the firstborn of everyone. If you were obedient, you didn't suffer. And he brought us out here. He put a pillar of cloud that we followed by day. There was a pillar of night, uh, excuse me, fire by night. That had to be incredibly uh, dramatic thing to see. And now we're going, I um, don't want to. You might go back. So uh, it, this is amazing. So look, here's a really interesting thing. If you go back to the third chapter of Exodus, um, God's telling Moses, they'll listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel will go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go on a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. So the original plan was to go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice God and worship him. They went three days journey into the wilderness and they grumbled. Have we ever done that? Have we ever been in a place where God wanted us to be and we just weren't happy with it? And we let people know we weren't happy? You know, went for this stupid government. I haven't seen it. Yeah, 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 I get it. So we have to ask ourselves, um, are we presumptuous? We have to ask ourselves, what is really important in our lives? Have we been in this spot that the Israelites were in, and have we crumbled? Have we decided we want other people to be on our side rather than us being on God's side? So when we do this, and we do it, when the Holy Spirit convicts us of this rebellion, of grumbling, what are we supposed to do? Well, the proper response is to repent. Last year, I saw this guy that I know named Ron. He lives outside of Atlanta. He told me his wife was uh, teaching their two grandsons, four and five, this new game. It's called Repent. Their house is up here. Land slopes down the back, a little pear tree down here. So she holds the boys and she releases them and they immediately run to the pear tree, plum tree, because they love that plum tree. At some point she yells, repent. They stop on a dime and they pivot 180 degrees and run back to her. That's repentance. It's stopping your mad dash towards sin and turning and coming back. So often, uh, we'll sometimes, we'll look at uh, repentance as a speed bump. Whoop. I mean, even if you, you get tripped on a speed bump, you're going to roll down the hill toward that pear tree, plum tree. I'm going to make it a pear tree. <laughs> so that is easy. That's our default system. Once you start going downhill, it's easy to pick up steam. Like I said, even if you tumble, you're going to go down. But you're going to roll toward the tree. Try rolling up a hill. 
It's impossible. The good thing is nothing is impossible with God. So when we find ourselves moving toward uh, sin in our lives or rebellion in our lives or not being happy with what God's doing in our lives, we need to stop, we need to repent, we need to go the other way. I was listening to Alistair Begg the other day, and he said, in our culture, uh, we say repent, what we're saying is my bad. And in our culture, we say my bad, what we're saying is, oh man, I'm sorry, I caused you harm. I take full responsibility. I feel bad about this. Now get over it. I said I was sorry. That is an attitude that you can see today in repentance. If we look at Isaiah, when he repented, he said, Woe is me. I am undone. When we find ourselves convicted by the Holy Spirit of rebellion, where are we closer to? Are we closer to, oh, my bad, get over it? Or are we closer to, oh, my gosh, I am undone? I'm going to say that if we go toward the latter, it's, it's, a, it's a better place to be. But when we hit that point where we're down, run down a hill, we repent, we stop, we pivot, and we turn, we go the other way, we got to remember that our little bodies, our little minds, our little souls, they're little vessels, and they have to be filled to the top. So if we take something out, like grumbling, we need to replace it with something else or else that's going to get filled up again with stuff we probably don't want. And you think about the opposite of grumbling, I think, is gratitude. If we're thankful to God for all that he's doing in our lives, we're not going to grumble. It's impossible to be grateful and grumble at the same time. Grumbling, I mean, excuse me, gratitude is hard. Uh, Martin Luther said, nothing ages more quickly than gratitude. I can be happy right now, but as soon as I go outside and I hit three stoplights in a row, I might forget what I said. Ken Boa said, with the passing of time, grace degenerates into entitlement. So we're all, this is what happened to the Israelites. We're all under the, the grace of God right now. And he provides us with so many things. The privileges of God are so amazing. And eventually, we sort of take it for granted. Ken said that one time, uh, he was at the airport. He's on standby. He had to get on this flight. Had to get on this flight. He's praying, dear God, please get me on this flight. And suddenly, at the last minute, stewardess came up and said, sir, we have one seat left. Thank you. It could be the overhead bin. I'll go in the luggage department. It, it doesn't matter. Just on the plane. Said, Come on in. And by the way, it's in first class. Oh, thank you, Lord. He said as soon as they took off, he's wondering, when are the stewards going to close that uh, curtain so those people in the coach don't come up here and use our bathroom? So he went from begging God to get him any place on that plane to God blessing him greatly and him going, you know what? I deserve better. And he admits it. So what are we to do? This is something Ken said. We need to get into the regular routine of remembering. We need to get into the regular routine of remembering. Remembering God's redemptive acts throughout the Bible and throughout your life. Read the Bible. Look at that overarching story where these, 
the Israelites were taken out of slavery, out of a bitter life. And God said, I promise you this land, a land of milk and honey, of sustenance and dessert. What could be better than that? But we'd go three days into it and go, eh, I don't like mashed potatoes. Okay, good. You're not going in. We, we need to remember. We need to look at that big picture. We need to do it on our own lives, too. There's not anybody in here who hasn't uh, suffered, who hasn't gone through trials. And most all of us have a story. My wife and I have a little ceramic dish in our house we call the miracle jar. Every time that something amazing happens, you go, oh, it's obviously God working on our lives. We write it down and we stick it in the jar because a day, two days, a week, a month, a year later, we've forgotten it. To occasionally go in there and pull it out and go, oh, my gracious sakes alive. You're right. I've forgotten that. That's just an exercise for us that helps us to remember to be grateful. So, guys, uh, I don't know where this... That's my last slide. I've lost the last three pages of my notes. So I think God is with us today. Let me say this. I, I stand before you a recovering grumbler. I've been in circumstances that I didn't care for at all. Um, I've been around people. I've worked with them, been stuck in cars and planes with them that I just didn't like. And I was not happy about it, and I let people know about it. Let me ask you, as one grumbler to maybe another, what are we going to do? You know what? Power is still out to... 8,000 people in a Covington area. Clico doesn't know what they're doing. They're unprepared. It's unprofessional. Yeah. You know what? Jesus loves you. You know, when you get out on 190, I got to make seven U-turns and go through 23 red lights before I can get home. Yeah. You know what? I, I know 12 people who love just to have a car. You know what? The government is wasting our money and they're spending it on immoral things. Yeah, they are. How's your neighbor doing? Are they struggling with anything? Can you help them out in any way? You know what? That ref should have thrown that flag last year. We'd have been in the Super Bowl. We'd have won it. Yeah. Thank you. You're right. He should have thrown it. Maybe we would have won it. But you know what? God still loves us. All things work together for the good of those who love the Lord. We are his special children. We are blessed beyond measure. We have nothing to grumble about. So I just ask that uh, as we leave here today, we think about those little trip hazards that can snag us and smash us to our face. Don't let it happen. Look, we're all part of a family here. Let's take care of one another. Let's watch out for one another. You see somebody struggling? Man, come alongside them. You see somebody grumbling? Unless it's me, go up and talk to him. As you leave here today, let's leave with a heart of gratitude. This is a glorious day. This is the start of a new season here at Trinity Church. The weather will be nice for another few hours. Let's just be grateful. So I, I would like to pray for us, and then we'll be dismissed. Father God, we are so thankful for all that you do. Forgive us, Lord, when we forget about the amazing blessings that you gave us, the things that we take for granted and that presumptuousness that leads us into grumbling. 
which is a trip hazard, but a big thing. Father, guide us throughout this day. I pray that we would look for opportunities to share your word, to share your love. And I pray that uh, we would just be great examples of who you are. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.